politics, government. Romans chapter 12, we talked the last couple of weeks about this big passage about how life is to look differently, how you are to renew your mind, how you are to think differently and to act differently. And as Pastor Brad so, uh, so well, so did so well was unfold that at the, at the heart of that is this heart of love and it's very personal application. Renew the mind, lay your life down. Now, as we come to Romans chapter 13, for those of you who are new to church, I want you to know that the writer, Paul, he did not insert chapter 13 and those verse numbers that wasn't there. So actually, when you come to 13, there is a change of thought, but there is distinctly a link back to Romans chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to direct your attention to Romans chapter 13. Let's, as we've said, let's do this thing, Romans 12 and 13. We're finishing up the book of Romans this year. Romans chapter 13. Yeah. Oh, maybe. You're fairly warned. Your your our uh, lead pastor said, "Lord willing, we're going to finish it." All right. Romans thirteen. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all who is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Isn't that appropriate here on tax day tomorrow? Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. As we come to Romans 13, it is an appropriate time for us to consider what does life look like publicly for the Christian. 12 is personal. A shift in 13 is what do you publicly look like? What do you, how do you live out your life? And Christianity today, if you look at the cover here, it's an appropriate time. Guys, will you show the cover, please? When to disobey and when to obey. It's an election year. And it's also a year within, that it, within the last 12 months, the issue of biblical Christianity and a secular culture has been placed clearly at odds that frankly, as a child, I would have never have dreamed. I've never seen such stark contrast 
And some have even said that our founding fathers really didn't have biblical convictions, and I would beg to differ. Take George Washington, for instance, who said, do not let anyone claim to be a true American if they try to remove religion from politics. Much of our founding fathers' faith and their foundations that they laid, the reality is that they've been set aside for a more progressive, if you will, interpretation of what law is and what is considered moral. And even this morning around the world, there are radical religious factions who are seeking to kill Christians and all who will not bow to their worldview. And many in our nation who claim no faith and no religion except a secular humanistic ideology focused on doing right, but doing it exalting man and nothing else, sometimes paint people of faith in the same light as terrorists and fanatics who are interested in establishing some kind of narrow rule and a new theocracy in our nation. Evangelical Christians today who are committed to biblical faith of trusting in a crucified Savior is our only hope and live a life of truth, live a life of love, we're increasingly facing a marginalization in a society in the name of tolerance. But in close inspection, we understand that there's tolerance for anything but faith in Jesus. Tolerance for anything in any message that says whatever it wants, as long as it does not say that humanity's ultimate hope is in a crucified Savior. Yes, America, in some ways, some Americans have forgotten our roots. And this is not a day to uh, let freedom ring, me to uh, pound on that anvil, if you will. What it is, is a reminder of what the scripture really says. But I can't do that apart from really reflecting just a moment about some of our foundations. I'm reminded of the Susan Constance and the Godspeed and the discovery that we're sitting at anchor in Chesapeake Bay in the, in, off the Virginia coast on April the 29th in 1607. Their captain, John Smith, had taken a hand-picked party ashore for a place to find to settle. Those that were left aboard watched and waited patiently for the green light come ashore. When the signal came, people scurried down the ladder to the waiting boats. As they rowed the last hundred yards of their journey, ashore they watched their captain and his scouts and the ship's carpenter erect a rough wooden cross that they had brought for this very purpose. For this very day. And the very first thing that they did that day was worship the Lord. It was led by Robert Hunt, who was the ship's chaplain. And it's doubtful that they could have imagined the glorious good that has happened in this nation. They could not have imagined 
how this nation would stand for right and do right in the face of tyranny around us and around the world. The choices we've made, good and poor as a people, as citizens of the country, are ours. And we've been blessed by God. But hear this. This passage does not deal with America. It does not deal with the state of American politics. It does not address who you should vote for in November. It does not address who will, what the next Supreme Court justice will do or not do, or if Planned Parenthood has any value, or if universal health care is biblical. Yet the temptation by some is to take all things political and sometimes lump it right here, making the text say something that it really does not say. It is not intended. I ask you, are you a patriot? Are you one of those? Are you one that stands and pledges one nation under God and you're, you get all worked up? The ideas, the rumors that under God would be pulled I wonder if you, like me, will come to a passage like this and say, what does God's word really teach us as citizens that we are to do and be in the light of our public testimony? What is our life? What is it, should it look like? So how should Christians live in light of your citizenship? How should you really live? What should your life look like? And I will tell you, it is a complex question that does not have real clean answers in the total balance of Scripture. But Paul's instruction here is very clear. As believers and followers of Jesus Christ, first, you are to live responsive, responsibly and lawfully in submission to government. Now, look, look at the passage there. He says it very clearly. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. He is painting the picture here that the authority that is present in the day and this letter written to the Roman church. And if you know anything about that Roman government, it was a cruel regime that had no tolerance for Christians. We were marginalized and seen as a cult. They were not understood, and I'll talk more about that later. But can you imagine? Paul says, submit to the government. It exists from God. And those institutions, just to reinforce it, he said they've been instituted by God. In the book of Jeremiah, I don't know if you know Jeremiah chapter 29, Nebuchadnezzar is called out who was bloodthirsty. He was a thug. God said, submit to him. Hard words. There's nothing really easy about passages like this. But a close inspection, we need to come to understand that the secular West that we live in is just now beginning to experience some levels of hostility that really the first century Christians faced. 21st century persecuted church today experiences it all the time. And it is this state that Paul tells Christians, 
submit. And it's the default position. The default position is doing what is right that benefits the government. Now, how that's put on display here is he turns his attention in verse 6. He says, for because of this, you pay taxes. I know of a guy every year he paid his taxes. He wrote a check, paid quarterly. He always ended up owing. Claimed his faith. He had a hard time with that. He wrote his check to the Infernal Revenue Service. (laughs) They cashed it. No issue. Huh. Maybe we're going to have a thousand new checks tomorrow to the Infernal Revenue Service. So I wonder, you pay your taxes, do you obey your laws? Do you serve the common good? Which is what Paul's talking about here. He wanted believers to promote respect for life, all of life, and understand in a civil, in a civil government that stands against evil, you and I are to submit. But note this. If you sit in this room today and you claim Christ as your Savior and Lord, and you claim that you're a born-again Christian, in the issue of all the circumstances surrounding decisions made in our country, you're born again to a higher citizenship. Philippians 3.20 says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you, do you really live as a believer? Do you live in that first half living responsibly, but do you understand the latter part? You are to live lawfully in submission to the government except when you should not. So careful attention here. It's not an easy, discernible place. I do not have all your answers in the next 10 minutes. But I do know this. If you claim Christ, if you claim that you've trusted in Jesus, central to that is a clear understanding that you are more than American. You're a child of the living God. And biblical Christianity is not a general assent to God, a general assent that Jesus was good and Jesus taught well. And Jesus is an example for us and we should follow his example. It is not just passively believing in God. That's called being a deist. You believe in the existence Biblical Christianity is about committing your life to Christ. It is moving off the throne of your life. It is choosing to turn your life over to him, living in trust that he and only he will keep you. No matter where you live or what you're doing or what you face as a people in a nation. It is a gift from God. 
where you were saved, not giving you a leg up, not getting you up and dusting off your dusting you off from the messes that you've made. And look, we've all homemade messes. Biblical Christianity is not a self-correction of your life. So you live the rest of your life just doing your own thing with no regard to what Christ calls you to. Biblical Christianity is this. You were ultimately saved, not from your government, but from yourself. We are to obey because it is good. We are to follow what the government says because it is right and because God gives us this to keep some level of civilization in place. But as I said, it comes to a place where you say, all right, there is a point. And that point is this. When the government asks you to actively do what God says, don't do that. Namely, what that is from a biblical standpoint is it's the place where you exalt government, where you would exalt leaders as equal to God and worth unquestioned devotion, you just do it. These are the very things from a scriptural standpoint that is dealt with in the book of Daniel. Now, we do not have time to get there today, to spend the time there. The quote that you have in your outline would give it to you better than I can say it. But basically it is this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3 of the book of Daniel, they are asked, they are told, all people are to bow to this idol. And they are in a foreign land. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all the people come out, thousands of people in the courtyard, there stands the erect statue The way it went down is like this. When the trumpet blows, everybody falls down. The trumpet blows. Everybody falls down except three sore thumbs sticking up. When they're called in, it's explained to them, do you understand the consequences of your actions? Yes, sir. So we're going to give you another chance. If you do not, you're going in the fiery furnace. And this is what they say. If you look at the text, they show respect. They're civil. They said, we hear you. We understand. And God will deliver us from the fiery furnace. But here's the interesting thing. If you know the story, they said, God will deliver us. But if he does not... We will not bow. And there was a reason why. Because their identity as people of God would not allow them to bow to another God. The other side of it is Daniel's. Daniel's situation. He's told not to do something that God clearly commands us to do. And that is pray and call to him. 
And no one was to pray. No one is to call. And because they have a bunch of jealousy going on in the land, they, a bunch of tattletales tell on Daniel. And Daniel prays nonetheless. Now you say, well, Brian, you know, I'm not dealing with that. Nobody's telling me that I can't pray privately. I can't do this. Well, let me just ask you this. Let's just kind of show you how this works. In the last hundred years, there's two events. Just ask you, where would you be? Ask you to self-inspect, ask you where you would be. Imagine that you're a citizen of Germany in the 30s. Imagine that life is just beginning to return to some level of normalcy. You own a business and business is getting better. People are shopping, they got money to spend. Things are cleaning up. There's national pride beginning to come back. And there's a charismatic leader who is telling the nation, we have answers, we can rise again. You have friends on your street who are Jewish. And one day you just happen to notice that your Jewish friends are beginning to wear this thing on their arm. And you ask, what's that all about? They said, well, they're requiring us to wear this now. This thing indicating our background. You think that's odd. But it's not long after that that you begin to notice that some of your friends just one morning are not around anymore. Their houses are empty. You're busy running your business, doing your thing. But you hear rumors of what's going on. And the more you hear of your national leaders, the more alarmed you become. The question is, at what point do you stand up and speak up and say, what is happening is wrong? Even 50, 60 years ago in our nation, if you lived in the South, can you imagine going into a restaurant and a person that's of a different color than you cannot sit where you're sitting? Not sit in the same place on the bus that you can sit? Because of these laws that are established in those states to segregate people, to separate them. The civil rights movement had at its core believing Christians who stood up and said, this is not right. But there were masses of silent professing people who said nothing. There is a time when any ruler or government official commands you to do something that God forbids, you must stand. Things like from Exodus chapter 2, there's a time for civil disobedience. When the Pharaoh said, kill all the Hebrew babies, the midwives did not obey. They hid the children. 
they did it. And it's rare that we're ever called to take up arms and fight to protect the innocent from especially cruel regimes. But I'm so thankful to God that this has been a nation that has discerned that and knew that there was a time that you stand up and say, no, no more. I wonder where you are. Are you a person that responsibly and respectfully obeys law? Or do you complain? I mean, honestly, when a police officer pulls you over and you were speeding or you rolled through that stop sign, do you reflect the character of Christ in that moment? Do you? How are Christians to live in the public forum? The law is present, you obey. Until you, are pro, until you are told to actively do something that God says not to do. It's hard. You must wrestle with it. Secondly, you are to live proactively engaging the state and exercising the privileges that God has granted you. As citizens of this country... We have some amazing privileges that not everybody has. You have the privilege to vote. You have the privilege to stand and to speak in light of biblical value, in light of your true citizenship. But if you're honest, you may be confused by that. So where does that start? Well, one of the things that we, we could, you know, a checkup immediately is to ask yourself this question. If you look at the statistics of people who show up to vote, Very few, 20, 25% is good. How can that be? Because you don't want to stand in line? Now, come on, let's be honest. You don't think your vote counts? This is not a matter of the winning or losing. This is a matter of fulfilling your responsibility and engaging with the freedoms that you have. I love, I love what Wayne Grudem says about this. He says, there's biblical teaching behind our constitution with the freedoms that we have. The biblical foundation of all men are created equal. This stood in clear contrast to the rest of the European nations, that there was somehow this special group of human beings known as royalty who had some kind of hereditary right to rule over ordinary people. How blessed we have been to live in a nation that all men are created equal would make us take a stand in light of oppressive government, Nazism, even sometimes our own. To stand and say, this is not right. Edmund Burke's quote that rings through the ages is still so prevalently true. Make no mistake about it. The only thing good men need to do for evil to prosper is to do nothing. But sometimes that's our posture. Sometimes that's our temptation. 
Sometimes we think it's a losing battle. We don't know really what to do. So if you proactively do engage the state, it won't be without temptation. Let's talk about the subtle dangers that we have. The first subtle danger that lurks in the shadows if you start being active is this. It's the, what I call the God and country. For God and country. What this means is that quickly you are tempted to live in such a way where you believe and you live where you're more concerned about who sits in the White House than who is firmly on the throne of your life and your neighbor's life. Your heart's not breaking over your neighbors. You have no idea where they are spiritually. You're more concerned about who lives on Pennsylvania Avenue. And because of that, what happens to us is this. When we get more concerned about and we start waving the banner, God and country, God and country, we begin to lack peace when things do not go our way. So we write blogs and we complain. We get on social media and we make fun. Can you imagine what your life would look like if everybody blogged about you? Everything you did, every time you picked your nose. I mean, honestly, can you imagine? As Americans, we have some wonderful biblical things, but there are some things that are not expressly biblical. Do you know it's not expressly biblical to live in a democratic republic? It's not. And listen, do you know that capitalism is not expressly biblical? Before you start pitching tomatoes at me, listen. The issue is as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we're not to live dominated by those things. Economies go up, economies go down. And I'm quite confident we'll see both again. And when we live with capitalism as our king, we got to be careful because what happens is we begin living in it like this. What's in it for me? So we vote that way. I just want to have a conversation with you and I want you to stay tuned with me just for a minute. I want to talk to you personally. I can talk about this because I have been chief of this tribe. I'm just being honest. I'm persuaded that many of us vote with our wallets and our assumptions. If we believe a candidate will benefit us, we're prone to vote for them. If we think he or she will put down what we likewise despise, we're in favor of them. Problem with that is this. When you come to the Bible, much of what... It's called the evangelical vote would run contrary to scriptural principles. Things like this. Did you know that Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 20 where 
guys are hired at the beginning of the day and agree to a certain sum of money. And then later in the day, the owner of the property needs more workers. So he goes, hires some guys for just for a couple hours. At the end of the day, everybody's paid. Guess what they're paid? Exactly the same thing. And guess what those that worked all day said? Not fair. Not fair. Don't like that. Yet, Jesus was establishing that there's a kingdom ethic that runs contrary to sometimes what we think. Listen to me, please. The kingdom does not operate in a capitalistic fashion. If Jesus gave me and gave you what you deserve, we get death, we get hell. I am so grateful that I don't get what I deserve. I get a savior who comes on the scene, who grabs me and pulls me into relationship with him and gives me eternity, grace and favor and love and mercy. That's what God gives me. And it should impact how I think. We need to understand kingdom ethic is going to cost. It costs Jesus. It's going to cost you, friend. It will cost. And you say, well, Brian, I like winners. I want to back the winner. I want to get behind a winner. Let me tell you, please be patient with me. It takes no courage to back winners. But it takes none. Everybody wants to get on the bandwagon with winners. There's no courage in that. Jesus does not call you to back the winner. He calls you to do what is right. Do what is right. Do what is good. And right and just for people, all kinds of people. Not people just like you. I love Micah, the book of Micah. If you ever have a chance, you need to go read that little book. One verse is central to the whole book. And it's Micah 6, 8. It goes like this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That word to love kindness, actually a more appropriate Hebrew translation is to love, love. Love loving, love Unmerited love toward other, hesed love, faithful love. I want to ask you, where God has planted you here in Florence, Kentucky, personally, you may love those around you, but do you publicly love the nation that God has given us in light of your Christianity? So you say, well, what does this look like? How do I love a nation that clearly seems to be off track? Well, that brings us to number three. You are to live in absolute trust in God's ultimate control. 
thereby incurring the only debt Paul encouraged us to have, the debt of love toward all. I want to hit this quickly. Understand this. In verse 8, he says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the law, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And if you look down in verse 14, the last verse of the chapter, he tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. What he's basically doing is this. He's reminding the believers that in Jesus Christ, when Christ clothes your life, your life's going to look differently personally, and it's going to look different in the public sphere. It's going to be different in how you live. I wonder, can you imagine? Some of you will know the privilege of having an audience with someone who has ruling authority. Some of you have known that. Maybe a governor, maybe a representative, maybe a senator, maybe the president of the United States. When they see you coming, what are they going to see? Can you imagine what the typical president sees when an evangelical Christian with a political bent moves toward them? Do they see someone who trusts that God is on the throne? Do they see, here comes somebody who loves me. I mean, I would love for all rulers, when they see us coming, they get excited. They go, finally, somebody is going to love me. Somebody that cares about our country. Somebody that is compassionate and merciful and will listen and interact civilly. Or do they see, let's just be honest, somebody who whines and complains, demonizing every choice made. I don't like you doing that. 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 Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? See, Paul is saying here from chapter 12 on, he says, Don't take revenge in your own hands. You know why? Because God is ultimately in control. He says in chapter 13 here, government's in position. I've placed them there. Submit. It's hard. It's not easy. But when Paul wrote this, remember this. There were no Christian magistrates. They were intolerant. They thought we were crazy. They took tax money. They put on these spectacles where people were torn limb from limb. You paid money to feed animals that ate Christians. Many years ago, I was reflecting to a friend of mine. This man served faithfully our country. He was an officer in Vietnam. I was reflecting on a decision that President Clinton had made. I was much younger. I'm still foolish, but I was a lot more foolish then. So I was complaining. This is what he said to me. I'll never forget this. He said, do you, do you know who you're talking about? He said, that's the president of the United States. It's my president, and that's your president. 
is the person that God has allowed to occupy the office. And though I did not vote for him, he is now my president. I urge you to do what I do. Show him some respect. He asked me, when was the last time you prayed for him? I mean, wait, really prayed. Got out on your face, cried out to God. He asked me, he said, have you asked God to do in him what he's done for you? Open your eyes, open your heart. It's convicting, but it was real. What if you and I live like the early Christians lived? Listen, I don't know if you know this, but historical scholarship does not tell us that the church survived because of our theology. The first 300 years, we were literally seen as a cult. And there were no antibiotics. And it it was a day that when Caesar, Caesar would go print his money and he would print on it liberalitas, which means I'll scratch your back. Remember, you need to scratch my back. It's a trade. I do for you, you do back for me. And he would throw money to them with a view that when I need it, you're going to be ready for me. And when disease and famine would ravage the land and there were no antibiotics, that was a day you would leave the innocent and the old and the crippled and the wounded. You would leave them. And nobody would think anything different for it. Why? Because they couldn't do anything for you. But you know who did do things for them? The Christians. It's written that these people who are in jail and who were left in their homes, even men who were wounded, who were occupying forces, who were pushed from the land, left in homes, wounded and sick, here would come these Christians. They'd bind up their wounds and they'd feed them. So much so that a war of words did not do it. It was the love. It was their generosity. You know, Brad and I've talked about this. Our Our whole staff has talked about this. Do you know how good it is to be in a church that is so generous? You guys are so generous. You give unto the Lord. You are faithful and you give yourself away to others. When I see you coming, I see love. I see you loving and caring for one another. Julian, Emperor Julian tried to reestablish paganism. And he said this, this impious Galileans, I quote, support not only their poor, they're talking about Christians, but ours as well. He couldn't, He could not galvanize enough support because Christians were doing more for the pagans than the pagans did for themselves. I wonder, is that you? Do you live in such a way that you're doing more in how you give away your life in love, in prayer, in care, in action, publicly? Is it clear that love is designates you 
And you have a posture of doing what is right submitted. I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads just for a moment. I'm going to ask you to just consider some private questions. In an election year, ask yourself, how do you live? How do you live publicly? Would people characterize you as one who lives as a kingdom citizen? Are you living in absolute trust that God has ordained our leaders? God has given us the laws and your default is submission. Do you exercise in faith the privileges of living in a nation where you can vote and where you can speak and where you can make sacrifices to the good of the country you live in? Or are you more passive? Do you just kind of stand by even low-level complaining or outright complaining? about your rulers, about the law, about what's happening around us? Where do you live? Trusting in a God who's faithful and good. Completely trusting that he is working all things together for your good and his glory in perfect balance. Maybe it is a time today just for some of us to repent, to change our mind and begin doing what God would have us do. And that's trust him fully, completely and honestly. Father God, Oh God, help us to be kingdom people. Help us, Lord, to pray effectively for the president that you give us. President Obama, now the president that we will elect in a few months. Oh God. Open their eyes as you've opened our eyes. Help us. Help him. Help her. Help whomever you've placed in those places of power. Oh God, help them know how to do right and to do justice. and To walk humbly with you. May we be people that love you faithfully. Publicly. In Jesus' name. Amen.